Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Herman Daly to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Herman is a pioneering figure in the world of economics, at the forefront of the development of the field of ecological economics, ideas he has been working on for more than 50 years, in particular the study of the steady-state economy. Herman was senior economist in the Environment Department of the World Bank in the 1990s, where he worked to develop key sustainable development policy guidelines. In 1996, he was awarded the Right Livelihood Award for defining a path of ecological economics that integrates the key elements of ethics, quality of life, environment, and community. Thank you very much, Herman, for taking the time to join me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. You're quite welcome. Happy to be here. So, uh, uh, Herman, um, I'd I'd like if you could maybe just talk a little bit about your uh, background, your many, many decades uh, work uh, uh, as an economist and uh, some of the key ideas that you've been uh, really developing over that time and uh, in particular the steady state economy. Um, Can you maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this particular uh, topic? Uh, Sure. I started out as pretty much of a standard growth economist. Uh, I was interested in uh, economic development in Latin America, and uh, that was what I was preparing myself for. And the the studies that I undertook as an undergraduate and graduate were largely um, growth economics in the Keynesian neoclassical framework. Um, so I, you know, I didn't start out as a heretic. Um, but events changed my mind. What were those events? I suppose one was uh, having studied under Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, who uh, emphasized the role of the entropy law as a foundation of economics. That's sort of the biophysical root of scarcity or the laws of thermodynamics. So that influenced me very much because... uh, the economics I'd studied before had no basis in physical science. It was pure, you know, monetary and uh, uh, value-oriented. The second thing, I guess, was I I read uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, uh, and that kind of opened my mind to the larger question of ecology and what you might call the, the big economy, of which the human economy is the subsystem, and how it would fit in uh, or not fit in, or uh, that that raised issues to me. And then I guess the third thing was I went to work uh, in Northeast Brazil teaching economics, and that Northeast Brazil is the poor section of Brazil. It was, at the time, was the poorest region in the Western Hemisphere, and it, it at that time, this was around 1967-68, had an extremely high population growth and a very high differential fertility between the upper and lower class. The lower class had very high fertility, the upper class only moderate. And so those things all combined to make me 
put together population, uh, the resource constraints, and the larger um, ecological setting of the economy. And, and that's kind of what pushed me in the direction of recognizing limits to growth. Yes, yes. And uh, th there was a lot of uh, that was uh, uh, in vogue. A lot of a lot of uh, interest in the in the limits to growth and and, and questions around that. Certainly back in uh, the, the, the the day. Um, now you you mentioned um, a standard neoclassical Keynesian approaches to to growth and so forth. Without getting trying to get too technical. Um, you know, uh, can you maybe just set the scene a little bit? I mean, we, we're surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, governments and uh, talking about economic growth. It's in the newspapers, it's in the financial pages all the time, and it's it's generally seen as a good thing, um, you know, in, in, and it's generally a, a key target of, of you know, of uh, governments to, 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 to have economic growth and, and seen as, you know, essential to, to helping to raise living standards, to bring people out of poverty, to create strong, powerful economies and things like that. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, just, just the, the standard understanding of economic growth and, and wh where you see broadly the, the, you know, the, the limitation of that? Uh, yes. The, um, of course, economic growth really got a, a big start in, uh, I think, after World War II. Um, and it was seen as the solution to poverty. What's the solution to poverty? Well, economic growth. What's the solution to inequality and distribution? Well, you don't redistribute because that will slow growth, so you have to grow more, and the growth dividend supposedly will go to the poor. Uh, what about the population problem? Well, uh, you don't want to deal with direct control of population. That's politically too difficult. So you trust in the demographic transition that as countries become richer, they will sort of automatically reduce their fertility based on this demographic transition, which has some basis, in fact, but also some contradictions. So all of those things combined to really put the emphasis on economic growth. And as I mentioned at the outset, I pretty well accepted all of that. Now, I I think I should uh, make a distinction here. I think there are two meanings of economic growth. One is economic growth is the growth of that thing which we call the economy. In other words, the uh, subsystem of the earth consisting of human beings and all of their artifacts and capital equipment and and things and furniture, things that we own. So the physical, so when the physical economy grows, that's economic growth. It's the growth of that thing we call the economy. So in good English usage, that's economic growth. The other usage of economic growth is growth for which, growth that is economic in the sense that it increases benefits more than cost. So those are two, two very different senses. So you might say that I'm still in favor of economic growth, but in favor of economic growth in the second sense, any growth that increases benefits more than cost, but I'm not in favor of economic growth in the, in the physical sense that it just expands the economy into the ecosphere. 
Yes, yes. And, and, and also, I guess, tied into that are, are these questions about definitions and so forth, that all kinds of things are thrown into this measure of economic growth, including many things which you wouldn't think of as being good, you know. Um, and uh, so it's, it's the actual measurement itself is, is a somewhat problematic. Absolutely. Yes. Now, it, 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 this is, you know, uh, many decades ago when you were doing, started out doing this work. Um, today, um, certainly there's been considerable momentum uh, and interest and um, controversy indeed around uh, questions of uh, degrowth. And there, is, so there seems to be a, a lot going on there, uh, raising this question, which is, you know, the, 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 the assumption that we should ha have continuous economic growth. And clearly it's quite a, a controversial or should we say attention getting uh, titled we call it degrowth get, gets people you know uh, quite uh, hot under the collar and so forth but there's certainly a, a lot uh, it seems to be in the public sphere um, and, and debate um, more than it, it was before now um, and I guess people can kind of get their head around some idea that you know uh, you can't separate the kind of environmental crisis we're having uh from the from 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 the overall rate of economic from the from the scale of economic activity, the stuff we consume and 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 the the rate at which you know that's growing. I mean, at, a, at an intuitive level, your uh, idea of a steady state economy, how does that relate to just a general idea that you know actually we should not be kind of buying so much stuff? And I guess a linked idea, which is quite popular um, and, uh, again, uh, probably needs to be unpacked, is the idea of, of, of low carbon growth or growth which wouldn't uh, increase CO2. Sorry, I, I packed a lot in there, Herman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think the idea of uh, what I've been calling a steady state economy uh, uh, really comes from classical economics. You know, back to John Stuart Mill 150 years ago. Uh, they use the term stationary state economy or stationary economy. Uh, I probably should have kept that same term, uh, but I was uh, convinced by others that steady state would be better. I think that was a Never mind. Steady state. What does that mean? Uh, steady in, in Mill's terminology, it means a constant population of people and a constant population of things of capital equipment. So capital stock and human population remain constant. Now, that doesn't mean that, they, that they're static because people die and uh, are born, but they're, they're being born in, at, at the rate at which they're dying. So, they over, so it's, it's a dynamic equilibrium. Same thing with capital equipment. Uh, things wear out and die. New things are produced but at the same rate so that the overall stock is roughly the same. So that in a stationary state or a steady state, you are not, the economy is not expanding into the ecosystem. It's not expropriating and taking in more and more of nature into itself and, and thereby displacing uh, the, the natural services that we depended upon. Now that was just fine as long as as the world was very large relative to the economy, as you know, in what I call the empty world, is em empty of the economy, really. Uh, growth really had no opportunity cost because nature was so super abundant. 
you could just expand into it and there was no real opportunity cost. But that was long ago. Now, you know, in my lifetime, if I managed to live for another year or two, maybe, the uh, the population of the Earth will have quadrupled. And the population of cell phones and automobiles and all these other things, our furniture in general, will have much more than quadrupled. So we no longer live in the empty world. We live in a full world. And nature has become sort of the limiting factor. The, the, uh, the extraction of remaining raw materials and the absorption capacity of the earth to absorb our waste are now the limiting factor in production. It's no longer the amount of labor and capital that's the limiting factor because they're super abundant relative to the resources that, that remain. So that's the reason why um, the state, which is an old idea from classical economics, it sort of got dropped, though, in, in the, in the uh, worship of growth, uh, or the emphasis on growth. It, but now I think it needs to come back. How does all that relate to degrowth? Well, all of this, all of this uh, came about in my mind long before degrowth existed. And degrowth is a sort of uh, interesting European uh, phenomenon. I, I'm favorable to it. I think if you've expanded the economy beyond its optimal scale relative to the ecosphere, then you need to contract. And so that is degrowth. But uh, degrowth cannot be a continuing condition. You're not going to degrowth all, on and on and on. You're only going to degrow down to a sort of optimal scale, which you will then try to, re to maintain at a steady state. So I don't see any real contradiction between yes, the steady yes, state yes, position yes. and the degrowth position. It's just a matter of, you know, I, and I agree with them that we're already beyond the optimum. And so that in order to get to a optimal level at which to maintain a steady state, we do need a period of degrowth. But degrowth cannot continue indefinitely any yes. more than growth can. Yes. Now, when you say steady state, what is it about a steady state that is attractive? I mean, on one level, clearly, a, you know, uh, to try to run in non-technical terms, you know, an economy which you know, is a, is a fraction of, you know, this called empty nature, that's, you know, a good thing, or a small, as a small footprint, you'd say. Yeah. Um, you know, but, w w so, so you could just say, you know, uh, or somebody come up with a version of, you know, a small footprint economy, whatever they might call that, something like that, you know. What is it about this idea of steady state that you think is important? Well, because it, um, it throws... <laughs> It, it's an alternative, a, a reasonable alternative to continual growth. Uh, I guess the starting point is to see that continual growth is not a feasible path. That leads you to a, a point at which, uh, well, we live in a finite world, so continual physical growth is not really a long-term option. And not only is it physically impossible, but it at some point becomes uneconomic. Uh, we reach a point at which the extra, uh, the sacrificed services from nature 
that we that we give up the opportunity cost of, of what we give up from nature services are greater at the margin than the extra production that we produce as a result. So it, it's a, uh, a question of of economic of optimal scale of the economy relative to the larger system of which it's a part. Uh, and that's a very economic question. I mean, when you, when you, when uh, you, if if you grow into, I, I suppose another way of putting it, uh, you might say that the uh, the growth oriented system sort of assumes that the we're growing into the into the void, that the economy exists in the void, and and it can just grow without encroaching on anything. Yes. Yes. That, that's. That's totally wrong. Yes. <laughs> the economy grows into the remaining ecosphere. It encroaches physically on that sphere by conservation of law of matter and energy. When you uh, when you take in more of the of nature into the economy, you have less of nature left. Uh, and so that's a cost, and we have not counted that cost. Yes. Because for for you know a good reason when the world was empty the cost was negligible and so you didn't worry about it the world is now full the cost is significant but economics developed in this period in which it was more or less reasonable to treat the world as infinite relative to the economy but that's changed out from under us and economic thinking has not kept up with that uh, change in the actual situation Yes, yes. It's very. I'm just wondering as well. Um, we talk about steady state. Um, the connection between population as well. I mean, a very big topic and uh, quite a, quite a, a gnarly one as well. And um, that uh, are you? Uh, what's the connection in your your mind between a growing population and a growing economy? Because clearly, we're seeing you know the, the world continued uh, population growth, although some countries. Uh, are, are witnessing uh you know falling populations and uh th- th- you know i i think demographers expect at a certain point uh, uh, uh population to 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 start to decline um it, how important is the steady state idea as a function of the a steady population and insofar as we're living in a world where we have a growing population, is there some kind of interim, <laughs> as it were, steady state? Or, or, or what would that look like? What would that state of the economy look like that would produce the, the same kind of uh, reduced uh, economic output, uh, but, but one that would re- um, meet the needs of a growing population? Well, I think I, uh, the growing population is ruled out from the beginning in in the idea of a steady state of cotton. Uh, going back to uh, John Stuart Mill and the classical economists, their definition was, you know, a constant or non-growing population of people plus, and, and sort of generalizing that, it, it, you know, people are physical objects that uh, have a footprint that consume uh, and have to be maintained and reproduced and so forth. Likewise, it's not a big stretch to say that the uh, that artifacts or things that we make, our capital equipment in the large sense, also has a birth rate and a death rate, and it can be maintained more or less constantly. It has a footprint. 
So it's these two things then that by definition are part of the steady state economy. And the idea then is to is to maintain them steady at a level which is in a sense optimal. That is, we're getting we're we get uh, we have not grown the, beyond the point where the extra benefits from further growth are 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 not uh, less than the extra costs. In other words, the costs and the benefits balance out at the margin, and we maintain at that at that level. That's the ideal. That's that's the yes, goal. Yes, yes. But does your idea? I mean, this model take into account the, that there may be periods of time. I mean. I guess it's a pretty big area to, to, to what degree, you know, and how and all kinds of questions about population management, um, you know, a pretty controversial area as well. Um, you know, uh, how does your model take into account that there could, you know, that, that there will be periods where certain populations will be growing and also... Um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here because we need to talk a little bit about the institutional framework in which, you know, a steady state economy could exist. But presumably this would have big questions in terms of, you know, how the governance or how these questions of, of management uh, of, of population um, would, would, would be addressed before one even starts to think about the issues of the global south. Uh, yes, this is this is a, a a big problem. Of course, we go back again to the classical economists, and uh, Malthus raised all of these questions, and the uh, and his position was, uh, you will face population limitations. The limits will either be what he called, um, I forget the name now, positive limits. That is, uh, the death rate will go up. When you reach a certain point, you can't you can't feed all the people, uh, or preventive limits, in which case you you would have um, control of population by uh, either the Malthusian solution to controlling population was late marriage and continence outside of marriage. Uh, the neo-Malthusians presented the more palatable solution of early marriage plus contraception with marriage, but limiting uh, at an individual level the, the, uh, the family uh, size, the size of the population. So it, it would be a matter then of, of individual prudence. Uh, you would uh, have the number of children which you could support, or you would watch them starve. So that's a very, um, that's the Malthusian world. Uh, yes, yes. Then the social, social, uh, safety nets come along and we say, well, we don't want to let people starve. So we're going to um, supply, uh, we're going to intervene in some way to keep the death rate from uh, balancing out with the birth rate. And then that leads to growth. And um, so there, there you are. It's, it's a real conundrum. And yes. I think, I think nowadays it's particularly, it's become um, well, very gnarly, and we've really gone backward. I, you know, when I was in northeast Brazil uh, in the 67, 68, that was the year when the uh, Pope's encyclical Humanae Vitae came out, which reaffirmed the church, the Catholic Church's position in opposition to artificial contraception, so-called. 
well, it was a, a big debate and discussion. What's happened since then? Well, in Northeast Brazil, the rate of population increase has declined greatly in spite of what the Pope uh, recommended. And the differential fertility between the rich and the poor has also narrowed greatly. So I think, you know, there's been a, net, a, a kind of a tendency. And I, I think the, the demographic transition hypothesis uh, that people at the individual level will pay the price and will learn to minimize that price by having fewer children, that this uh, this works. Also, I guess the trade-off is, uh, you know, if you want an automobile, then you better not have four children. That's a trade-off between yes, uh, yes. per capita goods and goods and children. Yes. Well, there's a couple of thoughts. I just uh, the the, the I, I don't know. It's it's a slightly different area, but uh, there's Project Drawdown, which uh, looks at the hundred most uh, powerful things we can do to actually draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and um, over the next thirty years reduce it. Um, and uh, one of the biggest uh, and most uh, impactful uh, ways of doing that is related to well, uh, two that put together are the biggest uh, related to uh, women's uh, to girls education and to family planning yeah. and there's a very strong cor- correlation between um you know uh, uh, providing uh, massive education uh, programs uh, for girls and, uh, and 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 fertility and and clearly also uh, the, the the whole question of of uh, contraception and so forth which is another whole a whole uh, huge can of worms um and, and very complex too um and and i guess um that at the same time um i mean Population uh, is, is, you know, is, is such an important topic. Um, I did see some figures recently suggesting something like 10, I think it was Oxfam report, that, that, that 10% of the population are responsible for about 50% of the carbon emissions. So that's quite interesting, I guess, in the sense it, it's, it's, you know, uh, in looking at where the, where the, envi- the real environmental uh, implications of, of population are coming from. Well, you've got uh, two factors. One is number of people, and the second is the amount of consumption per person. And so the limit is the total consumption. The, you multiply the two together, and there are two factors. And uh, so I think they're sort of a, of equal importance in, ter- in a mathematical sense. Uh, I, I would say certainly for um, the United States and Western Europe, the major emphasis should be on lowering per capita consumption uh, rather than on population. Uh, the poor countries of the world don't have much room to lower per capita consumption, but many of them are increasing fairly rapidly in terms of population. So I think that's where their emphasis should, uh, should be. The other thing I would say is that there's the, the notion of uh, Again, economic growth as the cure for everything, including population, excess population. This is the demographic transition thesis says that as countries get richer, they will automatically reduce their uh, fertility. Um, That has some evidence in its favor, but it's also a little problematic because what they're urging is more economic growth in order to limit population growth. So you're increasing the 
per capita consumption in order to limit the number of capitas. Yes, well, yes. What's important is the product of the two. Yes. And that that's kind of left out of, of the theory. You don't really know what's going to happen. So if yes. if, uh, if 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 in for example, if you if in India you you um, you lower if India has to raise its per capita consumption of materials up to the Swedish or US level in order to reduce its population growth, um, well, maybe they maybe that would increase the product by too much. Yes, but maybe the this question of economic growth is a proxy for education, presumably. Well, if if you're saying that the actual you know that the population uh, growth rates fall as 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 economic growth increases, uh, it could well be connected possibly to higher levels of education and. Well, for, you can for, have education without economic growth. That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. You can, that you can if re- you, rearrange, yes. reallocate your resources that's right. to more yeah, education. That's what, that's what I'm saying. There'd be a way of 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 get so the people saying that economic growth is the the issue. It may well be education that's the issue there. That is, so so they're saying that you know uh, economic the, the economic growth transition, but actually what's really underlying that is an educational issue. So you may be able to decouple them there. Now, now what I'm I'm quite interested as well is 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 this. A steady state economy compatible with capitalism? Yeah, well, that's the great big question that that comes up and up. And and um, I I would say, you know, what is capitalism? There's there's a big problem. <laughs> uh, is is it the? Some people would say that capitalism is just by definition it has to grow, grow or die. That's you know. Uh, accumulation, accumulation is the, uh, according to Marx, was uh, was Moses and the prophets as far as uh, capitalism concerned. Well, if if you take that part of view, then of course it is incompatible. Uh, on the other hand, if you say, well, capitalism, if you define it as uh, private ownership of the means of production plus a market system of allocation. Then you've opened up. Then you, well, it's not necessarily incompatible, depending upon what you do with the uh, how you constrain the market. So you may put limits on the market. In fact, this is the kind of thing that I would I would suggest that there be um, that you put, for example, depletion limits on basic resources. And that will basically then limit the the amount of economic production, and will limit the at the same time the uh, the, the cost of depletion at one end and pollution at the other end of this throughput of, of materials. Uh, now, with population, yeah, well, what you might do is is the same thing, a sort of cap and trade kind of system. Everybody is given, you know, a uh, the right to reproduce. Uh, the right to reproduce is a, a fundamental right. It is granted, let's say, to each individual by marriage or, or some other arrangement. You combine the two so that a man and a woman uh, then uh, have two rights. So that will basically give you roughly a, a, an equal um, 
population into, into the future. Now, that sounds very, very, um, you know, strange to the modern ears. Uh, what? You mean you're going to limit the, the, give a, a right to buy and sell children and make these rights transferable by sale or gift? Uh, that offends people greatly. So, you know, Kenneth Boulding, a uh, British economist, was the first person to come up with this sort of idea. And an interesting footnote, the application of this cap and trade system to population actually predates by about a year or two the economist's application of it to resources. Uh, so I think that's kind of interesting. Yes. But, of course, uh, Boulding presented it first in all seriousness. But then it was totally uh, no, and nobody liked. It. Everyone hated it. So he said, "Well, you know, uh, I, I didn't really mean that. A few years ago, I, I suggested this somewhat facetiously, and uh, went on and talked about more things like education of women and things which I'm totally in favor of. Incidentally, I mean, even if education of women resulted in an increase in fertility, I'd still be in favor of it." Uh, so that seems to me to be a, 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 a an easy one. Yeah. So Kenneth Boulding is uh, the uh, is is it he who said anyone who believes in indefinite growth in anything physical on a physically finite planet is uh, is either mad or an economist. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. That he had a he had a way for uh, making good expressions. Uh, the other concept that Boulding introduced or um, at least uh, made uh, helped with was the idea of throughput. Now, this, this is not a very uh, euphonious word, input equal output equals throughput. But what it is really is the digestive tract of the economy. You know, the economy has a, has a metabolism. It has to low entropy resources from the environment, it, it produces, it then consumes, the consumption wears out the physical structures, worn out waste is returned to the environment as pollution. So it's like an economy, uh, recognizing that an economy has a digestive tract, just like an animal. Now that may sound, you know, an easy thing, but if you go back to the textbooks, of economics, uh, even today in the first chapters, you will find the basic representation of an economy as a circular flow of, between firms and households. Uh, you know, firms um, employ labor from households, they produce goods, they sell to the households, and there's a circular flow of goods and services and factors of it. Of production that just goes around and around and around and around. Now, that that contains a certain amount of truth, but the diagram in which that is presented, there's nothing coming into the economy from the outside. There's nothing exiting to the outside. It's just a perpetual motion machine going around and around. Uh, that's you know. So the the economy as represented in that picture. Is like an organism that has no digestive tract. It only has a circulatory system. Well, yes. you can't keep a circulatory system going without a digestive tract. You know, it runs down, and uh, and so this is the big 
this is where Georgescu Rogan, I think, made such a huge contribution by emphasizing the entropic nature of this throughput of resources and that resources are the very sap of economic wealth and production. They're not something you can just abstract from in, in this circular flow vision yes, of going around yes, and around. Yes. I, I was going to ask you, could you elaborate on, um, I mean, because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a term from physics, um, and I know uh, all the social sciences are also uh, uh, renowned, are, are accused of having physics envy. <laughs> but the, yeah, de- right. the degree to which, um, you know, entropy, which is, as, you know, it's, it's a, a concept from physics brought into the world of economics. What does that, how does that change things by I- introducing uh, entropy? Well, um, consider First, I, I would like to say some people, uh, you didn't say this, but some people say, well, you're taking an analogy from physics. You're, you're importing entropy as an analogy into economics. No way, not an analogy at all. It is the real physical entropy law itself that's relevant, not some analogy. So that, just to clarify that as an aside, um, <clears throat> consider that um, suppose suppose we did not have the laws of thermodynamics, that is the first and second law, the first law, conservation of matter and energy, second law, the entropy law. If you didn't have those, there would basically be no scarcity. Uh, the economy as a subsystem of the environment, well, um, it could you could take in as much, uh, from the environment as you wanted to, and you could throw out as much as you wanted to. Uh, there's there's no conservation of matter energy. You could just keep taking it in and spitting it out. There would not really be any scarcity. Uh, if the if the if there was no entropy law, well, you could uh, you could take in a certain amount, but you could just use it over and over and over again. And, uh, and and not have to take in any more or give out any more in the form of waste. So, you know, you can only burn a gallon of gasoline once and, and then you end up uh, with uh, CO2 and a lot of other difficult things to deal with. Uh, if it weren't for the entropy law, you could burn it again and again and again, just like that, that very misleading picture in the uh, first pages of the economic textbook where where you just you have an isolated system in which production just goes around and around and around nothing has to come in from the outside to renew the uh, the physical structures nothing has to be thrown out to the environment again in this process of renewable renewal so it's really quite amazing that uh, that the entropy law which is, you might say, as Georgescu Rogan showed, it's it's really the most economic of all physical laws, and it's really the the root of physical scarcity. I mean, that's not the total explanation of scarcity. There's also the problem of human wants and desires, which yes, but this is the physical side. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, is there some idea of sustainability in your work on the steady state economy? And again, coming back to this idea yes. that, uh, you know, 
presumably at a certain uh, level of consumption or material uh, activity, it's okay. It's when it gets to the scale where it's not okay, where it's imposing, you know, where it's where it's using resources beyond the ability of the the, the planet itself to renew those resources. Do do you include some idea? Is there some way of addressing that, or is that something? Uh... Oh yes, that's that's very fundamental. Thank you for asking that, uh, because um, the whole idea uh, is that we're we're the steady state economy is to live sort of within nature's limits. Now we have to we have to deplete and we have to pollute. This, this is imposed by the entropy law. And, and if we want to stay alive and produce things, there's no way we can avoid depleting and polluting. But those are just fundamental costs, which we've kind of neglected in the past because we said, oh, the world is infinite relative to the economy. Well, no, it's not. And so the big question now is to balance these uh, the, the costs that we impose on nature to a level which is compatible with nature's capacity to regenerate. So you don't deplete renewable resources faster than they can be regenerated. Also, you don't pollute nature's spaces with waste faster than the ability of nature to absorb and and recombine those wastes into into new things. So you have two two limits. Uh, you, you don't exceed nature's capacity to renew. You don't exceed nature's capacity to absorb. Now, some, uh, of course, some resources are not renewable, at least on a human time scale. And so we're faced with the problem there of if you're going to be a real purist, um, you can't use petroleum at all. Uh, but that seems kind of <laughs> hard to imagine. So for renewable resources, excuse me, for non-renewable resources, the rule would be deplete them, but only at a rate at which you are able to develop a renewable substitute or a technological substitute of some sort, which allows you to become uh, to, to find another way of getting around that scarcity. So those are the kind of rules I think which would which would govern um, the you know what is a sustainable level, a sustainable level of the of a steady state economy. So that sustainable one thing it's one thing to be physically biophysically sustainable. It's something a little different to be optimal. You know, optimal from a point of view of human beings, optimal from a point of view of all living things, uh, optimal from a theological point of view. I mean, there that gets into into more questions. Yes, yes, and I guess it, it, it's it's worth talking about what this looks like in the global south, what it looks like in in China, what it looks like in India. Um, 
and I know there's some controversy around uh, um, the degree to which it's really true that, but you know, on the face of it, uh, hundreds of millions of Chinese have been lifted from well, w- w- from where to where, I guess is a question, but you know, from some kind of level of extreme poverty through you know global economic growth or economic growth of one form or another. Um, still, you know, uh, these countries have 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 have, have uh, you know massive malnutrition and and you know there are all kinds of uh, you know uh, problems there. So, is, is there some minimum level of call it economic activity rather than economic growth that that you need to have achieved or some way of measuring that before you start to think about? that the steady state economy? Well, I think this, you know, uh, one other institution for the steady state, I mentioned uh, sort of a population limitation program and a depletion quota system uh, limitation. The other would be the third one, uh, third leg of the stool would be uh, distribution limits, sort of a maximum and minimum uh, income uh, distribution limits so that you would have, I mean, the idea of a minimum income has considerable support, uh, even though it, politically it may not be uh, really respected all that much. But at least I think philosophically, we many people, certainly I think there should be a, a minimum below which no one is allowed to fall. Well, if the total is limited, by biophysical constraints, and you have a social limit on the minimum, then implicit you also have a maximum, uh, a, a, a level beyond which individual income should not be allowed to rise. Well, of course, that's the uh, that's the limit that creates the most opposition. Uh, people like a minimum income, but they get all upset about a maximum income. But I think it it would be uh, Required so uh, some range of limitation in the inequality. So I mean, it's not an argument for total equality. It's an argument for limits to the degree of inequality within which we allow a market system to allocate uh, resources. We, so another, I guess, another thing I should say is to look at the steady state idea in terms. I get criticized quite a bit by, I guess, more by the left for uh, reliance on the market. You say, oh, the, you're, you're relying on supply and demand in the market and so forth. That's just capitalism. That's going to cause all the problems. Well, I mean, I would say that the idea of a steady state is a should be looked at as a constriction of the market. The market, is, it, that's what we have now. So that's our given starting point doesn't do any good to imagine a blank slate. Uh, The market is where we are. So we'll limit the degree to which the market can deplete and pollute. We'll limit the degree to which the market allows any level of population. We limit the degree to which the market allows inequality in the distribution of income. Within those limits, how are you going to allocate whatever you manage to produce? Well, I think we can we either have the market sort of system or we have central planning. Uh, some people favor central planning. I favor a, a regulated market. 
Right, right. Now, has there any been any examples? I mean, of of uh, e- economies that have more or less existed in this kind of steady state. I mean, Japan is that a possible po- possible candidate? I mean, population hasn't been growing. Economic growth's been pretty static. Has it, in some way, uh, had some features, some characteristics of a steady state? Yes, I think so. Japan is. Um it's had very high economic growth. Of course, the other thing, a lot of their economic growth has been what I really would would call development rather than growth. It's been a qualitative improvement in, in, uh, in terms of technology and in terms of um, priorities. So um, Japan has not just gobbled up more and more and more resources because they're an island country. They don't have too many resources. They're a clever and inventive people, and they uh, they just do a better job with what they have. Um, so, you know, in a way, geography uh, has kind of forced the Japanese to be more to depend more on qualitative improvement than on quantitative increase. And uh, yes. now I don't. So, in a way, they're I'd say other countries that have moved in the direction of a steady state would be Norway and uh, and the Scandinavian countries and I, and I think to a large degree the Netherlands. Uh, they've they've just recognized that there really are costs of population growth and costs to um, to econ- to physical uh, growth in, in output. And they've taken these costs seriously and have tried to impose them on their society and, and to recognize them. So, And also, you mentioned China earlier. Uh, of course, China has become sort of the growth champion of the world. Um, on the other hand, China is sort of the only the country which, at least for a period, has most seriously limited population growth. So they they drastically restricted population growth after they hit a billion people. Uh, They've relaxed that uh, uh, more recently. So, and I don't know, you know, I've never been to China. I don't really understand all of it at all. But people that I talk to, uh, you know, there has been, there's considerable interest in ecological economics in China. That's right. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've uh, they've even have a po- you know a, a sort of stated policy of developing an ecological society. Yes. Well, you know, we'll see how far they go with that, but <laughs> yes. at least there there's some people that are very seriously recognizing the uh, the the costs of growth. Again, you look at the the pollution and yes. uh, of problems they've had. People wearing masks on the street, having to buy oxygen. Uh, at some point, people begin to recognize, hey, it is possible to grow too much. Yes. And there is, uh, you mentioned something there that's quite interesting. And I guess it comes back to this definitional aspect of, you know, growth or GDP, GMP, what have you, is that the qualitative aspect, that if you had a measure that was more multidimensional, that had a qualitative uh, some 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 uh, powerful qualitative elements. You'd be able to see that you can have uh, you know an economy which was, I guess, you know, getting better, 
in 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 a sense whatever that might mean but qualitatively in the sense that with better qualitative outcomes for people rather than being measured just in some kind of physical measure of output or monetary measure of output that you would have some quality and and then in a sense that steady state uh, could be steady in one sense but also increasing in another you could have a qualitatively an economy which is increasing steadily and and even you know more than steadily qualitatively but um you know not necessarily with the same kind of you know uh, physical output well that's excellent Fargo you've gone right back to uh to John Stuart Mill you know and he says that the uh the fact of a, of a steady state economy in physical terms in no way implies a steady state in terms of quality. And he says there would be as much possibility for the art of living to go on improving and indeed much more likelihood of its doing so when people stop to be so concerned with the art of just producing more and more stuff. Uh, so that, that really uh, is is an important part of the of the whole idea. Yes. And maybe just finally, I mean, it's fascinating. There's so much to talk about here. We haven't discussed about the growth uh, virus that's <laughs> driving globalization, you could say, in finance, which is, I guess, a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but I'm just wondering, how have your ideas, I mean, these are, you know, uh, ideas that you've developed over quite a period of time and were, you know, at the time and still, you know, quite uh, radical and quite, you know, different. And how, how have these ideas been taken forward now? And, uh, and I, I'm just wondering, maybe just finally, you know, wh- where do you see it going? Um, because as there is, well, to a greater or lesser extent, increasing awareness of the inv- you know, limits to growth and environmental uh, crises we're facing, surely w- people are looking to these ideas more. Yes, that's that's interesting. Um, I guess my interest in all, or I, my first publication in this field was, I guess, 1968. Uh, and then... You know, I guess it was 72, the Limits to Growth book by Dennis and Donella Meadows came out and, and was a, uh, and I was very much in, involved in that debate on their side against standard economists who, who just didn't like the book at all. Uh, so there was that initial period in which there was kind of total rejection at least, well, I shouldn't say that. It, rejection by the economics profession and most businessmen. Uh, but the, hey, the book sold millions of copies and was translated into many languages and and generated a huge discussion. So in that sense, it, it was the limits to growth book was more uh, favorable. So in the in the I'd say in the early seventies, it looked as if these ideas were going to going to, uh, you know, push into the mainstream with some rapidity. Well, then the 80s comes along and there seems to be, you know, a a reaction back. And so there was a, um, I I guess it went the other way for a long time. And nowadays, you know, I don't know if it's uh, an accurate recognition or just a hope, but I, I think the problems have become so glaring, particularly now with the uh, with the climate issue, 
Um, that's not by any means the only limit to growth, but it's the one that I guess affects people most immediately and most broadly. Uh, so I would say that <clears throat> we're going to see a period of increasing interest in, uh, in limits to growth. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through and explain these really interesting and, and, and powerful ideas and, and the great work you've done over so many decades spreading the, these ideas and developing them. And, uh, and thank you for your time today, Herman. Well, thank you, Fergal, for your interest and your good questions, and uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>